And we'll read the whole chapter together. Daniel chapter 1, reading from verse number 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, which part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favoured and skilful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding signs and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs has set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus, Melanzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. That's our reading. So we're starting on our studies of the whole book of Daniel, and as we do so, it is very biographical in nature at the beginning. It's the story of Daniel and his friends. And really it's the story of Daniel, a young man, when we encounter him, but going through um, early years, middle age, and ultimately an old man, and he's a man who stays faithful to God for 80 years that we know of, and he's living those 80 years in a pagan society, in a godless society. So you have Daniel living for God in a hostile environment, essentially an anti-God environment. And it's often said, and I've read it in quite a few places, that Daniel had such a revelation of the future that he was able to live for God in the present. 
And that is the character of what comes through in Daniel's writing. And of course, when you come into the New Testament, you get that idea in 2 Peter chapter 3 for us as Christians, that it is a good thing for us to have a firm grasp of God's revealed purposes for the future in order that we would live well for God in the present. 2 Peter 3 verse 11 and 12 says that very thing. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, and so forth. So that's that kind of principle you see in the New Testament. Now, what's the background then to this book? Well, in a broad kind of brush background, you have this. That God's chosen people in the Old Testament are known as Israel. And God chose out that nation beginning with one man, Abraham, and the story of Israel begins with Abraham and flows right through our Old Testament Bible. And it's a story ultimately of unfaithfulness on the part of those whom God chose to be a special people with a special relationship with them called a covenant relationship. And Israel proved unfaithful and God proved faithful. That's really the big story of the Old Testament. And in particular, when you go to the book of Judges, you have the the story of Israel's unfaithfulness played out in graphic detail, which resulted in God disciplining his people. And you have part of that people, the northern 10 tribes out of 12, taken away into captivity into Assyria in about 722 BC. And they're never heard of again, historically as an entity. Then you have the southern kingdom, Judah, and they go a bit longer, but ultimately the same thing happens. God removes them from that promised land of Canaan, of Israel, and they're taken into Babylonian captivity, of which we read in Daniel, and that happens about 586 or 587 BC. It's recorded in 2 Kings 25. Now, with regard to the captivity into Babylon, with which we're concerned, there were three stages historically of it. It didn't all happen in a winter. It happened over quite a long period of time. You have the first stage of captivity where Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies and he doesn't ultimately occupy it. He passes through on his way really to Egypt. But anyway, he defeats Judah and the first captivity where some are taken out of the land back to Babylon happens in about 605 BC. Then you have the second captivity where more go, and that's about eight years later. And your third captivity is about 19 years after the first one. So you've got this staggered depopulation of Israel as a land. And the nation of Judah, by and large, ends up over in Babylon. Daniel goes through the whole thing from beginning to end. He's there when it starts. He's there actually when some of them come back out of Babylon, back into the land, and he lives through the whole thing. He is a key person within that society during that whole process, and not the only one. God placed key people within the structure, the administrative structure and ruling structure of that society so that his people would be protected and his purposes would be fulfilled. And so we come to this chapter and we're going to look at Daniel and how Daniel copes with the commencement of his life in captivity. Now, 
It could be, we don't have an age, but certainly reading other things, it would seem to indicate that Daniel could have been about 14 years old in Daniel chapter 1. Possibly up to 17, but no older. That's the age group. We call them a teenager. Is You don't get the term teenager in the Bible. You're either a child or an adult in the Bible, but he is what we call a teenager. And so what we're going to read about Daniel is the actions, not of some super um, spiritual, unique, different sort of person. He is a teenager who's going to live for God. And what he does, we can do. That's the challenge of the ministry today. So, what then happens? Well, if you go down as we normally do, we go down these verses. We're going to do the same, even though it's in the Old Testament. And we'll tend to do the same through Daniel. Um, we'll look at some of the detail of the text rather than just comment on it um, as an overview. If you look at verse number three, is where we're going to start this evening. <clears throat> you have something happening which involves uh, Daniel. And basically what happens is the king does a very smart thing. The king has got a very large empire, and to rule this large empire, what he does is he takes people from each of the provinces of his empire that he conquers, and he trains them up to rule for him. And he's doing this with regard to Israel. So he takes hostages from the ruling elite of Judah, and he's going to try and turn them into Chaldeans, people who would represent Babylon amongst their own people. So he's going to train these young men, and they will administer that province for him. That was the pattern of his rule. Now, what is interesting in a practical sense is when we come to verse 4, we start to see something of the thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this hopefully will be quite familiar in a modern-day application. So, these teenagers are going to be chosen. So, here's the question. What kind of teenager would Nebuchadnezzar want and choose? What would be important to him? What would he value? What would he see as, as being significant and attractive in that sense? To choose this sort of person to elevate them giving them responsibility and giving them privilege, what's the sort of person that Nebuchadnezzar would choose? Well, it's described in verse number four. Children, and as I said, uh, education for youths in Persia began properly in this sense at the age of 14 and ended at 17, according to Plato and his writings. So we would presume that Daniel is in that age range. So you have to look, Nebuchadnezzar says, for people, children, first of all, in whom was no blemish. Imagine looking for a teenage boy in whom is no blemish. I mean, that's quite a search, um, if you think about it. So they didn't want anyone who had any physical blemish, deformity, difference in physical appearance. Extremely important. The look. So, no blemish, flawless, physical specimen is absolutely vital to Nebuchadnezzar. It's valued, it's important, it's significant. In fact, it's the first thing of importance. How is this young person going to look 
Now you see the familiarity, not much changes. What is of the utmost importance to most people in our society in this age range is that very thing, the look. Well, it's the same for Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, not only does he say in verse number four, in whom was no blemish, but well favoured. Now, in your translation that you have in your hand, it may well put it this way, good looking. I'm just trying to see if there be any qualifying here, maybe, maybe not. But someone who had to be good looking, so no blemish, good looking. And it's interesting because when Israel is going to choose a king in their history, what did they look for? The very same thing. A man who was physically imposing and striking in appearance, and they found him in Saul. And actually says that of Saul. He was an impressive person to look at in terms of his physique and in terms of his looks. He was a very distinguished looking individual. Well, again, make the application. In our society, in our world, what is of very great value are these two things. No blemish and very good looking. But more than that, he says that they were not only to be well favoured, but they to be skillful in all wisdom, which means highly intelligent. Now that's quite a combo if you're good looking and intelligent. But skillful in all wisdom, that is a superior intellect, highly intelligent. Then he goes on and he says this, cunning in knowledge. That is education. Superior in education. The literal Hebrew is knowers of knowledge. So this is quite a high spec. Someone who is no blemish physically, who's good looking, well favoured, who is intellectually superior, who is educated to a very high standard, who understands science. Now, I don't think that's you know, when you do, well, way back when I was at school, when you did science in S1 and S2 and then your sciences were broken up, it's not really that kind of idea. It's not that they know a lot about physics and chemistry necessarily. The idea is more that they can assimilate and correlate information. It is drawing conclusions from data and processing that. That's the sort of individual they wanted. Someone who could administer and have that capability. And then, if that wasn't, because, you know, see, if you get someone who's ticking a lot of these boxes, they may be socially awkward. In fact, probably going to be socially awkward. But socially awkward people were ruled out because it says this, they have to have the ability to stand in the king's palace, which means they need social graces. They need to understand how to conduct themselves in a palace So they'd have to eat the right way, you know, table manners, all that kind of stuff. Stand up straight, not say the wrong thing at the wrong time. No discretion and all this kind of thing. And this is the individual that is being sought. You see, you can actually distill that down into three areas of vital importance. Number one, physical. Secondly, mental. And thirdly, social. These are the three areas that concern Nebuchadnezzar. Physical, mental, social. Now what's interesting is what's absent. Nothing to do with character. Nothing. Nothing to do with spirituality or spiritual qualities. Nothing to do with virtue or morality. They're not even mentioned. 
They're of no particular importance in this context to those people. Still the same today. If you are, if you have a certain type of look, if you have a certain type of intellect, if you have a certain type of ability and knowledge and capability to do business, to do whatever, it could be sport, it could be, it could be, uh, you know, being an influencer in social media, all that kind of stuff. If you have the look or if you have the capability, then it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, you'll get on quite well. It doesn't matter about your morality. It doesn't matter whether you've got virtue or anything like that. According to the world, you will just keep on rising. Now, of course, as Christians, we would understand that our value system has to be significantly different from that value system. When you come to the New Testament, it's interesting that these things aren't mentioned when someone's development and maturity is described as a Christian. It's what's internal. It's all to do with virtue. It's all to do with character. It's all to do with spiritual attributes. There's nothing about these external things mentioned at all. And so there's the big, big difference in that. That's something we all need to be very careful that we don't slip into that mindset where we adopt the value system of the world in which we live. And we're going to see that Daniel did not adopt that value system. And we need to be careful about that, young and old. Now, what was the purpose of the choice? Well, the purpose of the choice is seen in verse number um, five and four, I suppose. And it was just this. They were going to make them, they were going to convert them to fully-fledged Babylonians or Chaldeans. And there was a huge culture in Babylon. These were not tribes, people running about, you know, looking after uh, animals in the desert or anything. This was a sophisticated culture. Perhaps the most sophisticated culture of its day. And they were old, old Babylonian and, and Chaldean languages. They were big into astronomy, astrology. They had lots of natural history information. They had a huge mythological history and learning. And they had all sorts of legends to do with creation and the flood. They had a plurality of gods and a sophisticated religious system. They had the finest architects in the whole world in Babylon. They were experts in incantations and myths and legends and sciences and sorceries, all that kind of stuff. And the idea was just this. We're going to take those people and we're going to put them, to use the New Testament analogy, we're going to squeeze them into our mold and we're going to make them just like us so that they will sound and look no different. And we're going to make them and identify them and do all sorts of things, and we'll look at this in a moment, to accomplish that process. So that we will take their unique identity and we will destroy it. And we, when you come, guys, you can come up to the front here if you want, right at the back. Or in Daniel chapter 1. And we were just talking about good looking without blemish. <laughs> People, but it's okay. <laughs> so Daniel 1 in verse 4, and this is what they did. Look at verse number 5 to accomplish that process. Now, I think this is so applicable to us today, especially this age group. 
as I'm speaking to quite a lot of people within that age group, but not just that age group, it goes beyond it in our society. This is how it was accomplished. This was the process. So first of all, and it's very subtle, they create gratitude, obligation, and dependence. Gratitude, obligation, and dependence. It's subtle. And so the king appoints them a daily provision of his meat so, and also of the wine which he drank, and he nourishes them for three years. So what, they're done, the, what happens is they are given a diet that fit for a king. And their appetite is going to adapt to that diet until they are dependent and they have desire stimulated within them for what only the king can provide. Can't get it anywhere else. And so there will be gratitude when it is provided, there will be obligation when it is provided, and there is an absolute dependence upon the king. Can't get this stuff anywhere else. It's almost like the drug culture. And so this sophisticated process, lavish food on them, create this sense of gratitude, build a perspective in their minds, create a demand within their desires and within their appetites for what then you only can provide and give. Feed them what they've never eaten before and what they wouldn't eat anywhere else. Seduce them by their appetite and then lock them in to the system. Lock them in. And so elevate their standard of living. Elevate their diet. Give them a better time and then bring the obligation and the dependence along with it. Also, elevate them socially above their peers so that they have to stand in the king or before the king. They have to serve the king. And so they will spend a long time receiving from the king, stimulated that they become used to it, it becomes the norm, and then the obligation comes in. You will now serve the king. That's a classic satanic approach of seduction. You see it right back in the Garden of Eden. You see it when Satan comes personally to tempt the Lord Jesus. What does he do? He shows them the kingdoms of this world and their glory. He shows it, he displays it. He tries to create an appetite. He tries to seduce the Lord. So that there is a, he tries to invoke and stimulate a desire for what he then says he can provide. But here's the obligation, fall down and worship me. You get that if you do this. But what was happening here was over a longer period of time. And so actually it was given initially with no obligation. And given a bit more with no obligation. Until dependence comes in. And then the obligation arrives. Satan pulls people in like that, bit by bit by bit, until he locks them in to that dependence. Notice also in verse 6 and verse 7 that there is a change of identity imposed upon them. 
So their appetite is going to be changed and their identity is going to be changed and they're going to be given new names. Now the purpose of that, because in the Old Testament, very much your identity and your character is associated with your name. It still is. You know, if you were to take away your name, you're taking away your connection with your family that's gone before. And some people who never discover their family name feel, feel a real loss of identity. And this is going to be a change of identity. So what they've been told is you'll forget the past, you'll forget your heritage. And again, this is a common approach, satanic in the Old Testament. Remember what happened to Joseph when he arrived in Egypt? He got a new name. Remember Esther had her name changed as well. And the significance is in the meaning of the names. Daniel means God is judge, but Belteshazzar means Baal provides. Interesting, Baal provides. So it's not just the king, it's Baal now who's provided. And Hananiah means the Lord is gracious, but Shadrach is a derivative from the god Aku, which is one of the Babylonish gods. You know, we always refer to him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because it goes well in the children's chorus. But actually, these names are names associating them with the Babylonish gods. Mishael means who is like the Lord. Meshach means who's like Aku if that's how you pronounce it. Azariah means the Lord is my helper. Abednego means servant of Nego, who was the son of Baal. So the, the, the identity is being changed by the name change. Again, it's interesting that all of this was heaped upon them. So here you have a teenage boy, and he's been told, your diet's going to change. Your name is going to change. Everything about your life's going to change. We are going to change your identity. We're going to change you. Let me just say this to you. I suppose it's been that long since Bible class that kind of forget about how important it is to really feel the impact of these things in day-to-day life for us all. That the Bible warns us as Christians that Satan wants to do the same thing to us. He wants to change us. He wants to mould and shape us and he wants us to lose our essential identity as followers of Jesus Christ. He wants to stimulate an appetite for what he only provides and then lock you into it. He wants to change your identity so that you no longer are known as, seen as and identify as a Christian. What is Daniel going to do? He's not surrounded by the scaffolding of lots of Christian friends. He's got a few friends, but Daniel is going to make up his own mind to do something. Let's read it in verse 8. It says this, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank, and so he requests that he be spared that. And he did not have to do that. 14 years of age. I was going to say hands up, you're 14. 14 years of age. Imagine it. I think I was 14. I'd just come into fellowship. I'd just get baptised when I was 14 in this uh, hall here. At 14 years of age, Daniel makes a critical decision which shapes the rest of his life. Now, you may not think at that young age that you could make such a decision that will shape the rest of your life, but you can. You've just got no idea. But it could be that decision. It's going to shape your life. It's going to change your relationships with your friends. 
change your life at school, change your life at college, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, whatever it is. He does that and he purposes in his heart. He lays it on his heart. This is not just a silly thing off the top of his head. He's actually thought this through. He's prepared for the consequences of his decision. He's actually serious about this. It's not something he's going to do for 10 minutes and then change his mind. But he's faced with three issues. It's interesting. He's going to be put into the Babylonish education system. He's going to have his name changed. And he's going to have his diet changed. Isn't it interesting that he accepts the first two? And he won't accept the third one. He accepts the Babylonish education system. Not all of it was evil or ungodly. There are many scientific things and principles of architecture and all the rest of it, I suppose, that have still lasted down through the years. There was language that he would learn, all of those sorts of things, and he goes into that system and does not resist. Doesn't fight the education process that he's about to be put into. He also doesn't object to the name change. I don't know if he felt that the change was only for his name and that he could cope with that and in reality he would not have his identity changed. We're not told his thinking, but he doesn't object to that. But he does object to the change of diet. Why? Well, he says, because to change his diet would mean to defile himself. It's going to have an impact upon his relationship with God. And so he will take a stand. That's the difference. Now, the reason there is a difference is just this. Why would he say no to the food and yes to the education? Well, in the word of God, there is no strict prohibition against bearing a heathen name. There's also no strict, there's also no prohibition, actually, in being educated within an ungodly education system. But there's a very strict prohibition for Daniel about what he can and cannot eat. And it's laid down in Scripture. It's explicit. It's there. You can point to it. You can read it. So what he's doing is just this. Remember, he's only a teenager. He is standing upon the solid foundation of what he knows of God's word. And he will not yield on that. That's where he takes his stand. He takes his stand upon the word of God. He has a specific biblical mandate to so do and to draw that line. Yes, there would be things he would be taught in the education system he would need to reject and filter and all the rest of it. That's the same with every education system. Yes, in terms of his name, he would need to hang on to his own identity. Yes, but when it comes to this, he can't eat that food because... Scripture teaches that to do so for him would mean that he would be defiled and his relationship with God would be affected. And so he says, no, no, that's it. Not going there. And he takes a stand. Just imagine him. 
This could have meant death for him. He's honest in his stand. He's 14 years old, it's likely, and he conducts himself with such dignity and grace. He uses strong words, but correct words, as he, as he addresses those who are over him within the system. He makes his request. He doesn't make demands. He's reasonable. He shows respect. And he tries to do what's right and does so in the right manner. I don't know if you think it's a good thing to sit in the N25 and object to insulation, not being your home or whatever it is, but, or the climate change and that kind of thing. But that would really irritate everyone who's driving down the M25 and cause untold uh, problems for people. And even if that cause is a good one, then it's very, very annoying to everyone else if you seek to bring about whatever it is you want to bring about by that sort of means. Daniel's not like that. Daniel's not going to sit down. He's not in a civil protest. He's not creating havoc. He's actually trying to do the right thing in the right way, even in this context. And he has such an unusual... He puts himself to the test. And look what he says. He basically says, you know, we're not going to take any of that. Look at verse 12. He says, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Give us vegetables and water to drink. Can you imagine what impacts that's going to have on his digestive system. If you eat vegetables for 10 days in water, you're going to be wrecked and very unpleasant to be with. And this is what Daniel says. And he says, look, he's actually going to put himself at a higher standard than what the Bible in the Old Testament said he should. He's going to make it obvious that it will be God that intervenes here. This is not going to be physiologically possible. I mean, it's not that you're going to suddenly, through a 10-day diet of vegetable and water, look dramatically different from everyone else and in a better way. But that's exactly what happens. You see, the Lord intervenes. The Lord brings this about. And so this is what happens. And you just read down through the narrative of it. And basically the story unfolds that he's allowed to do that. And what happens is this. Can you believe it? I mean, this is, don't take this out of context and say you've got to go vegetarian and become fairer and fatter. Because I'm not sure you will. But it says here that they became fairer and fatter. They look better and they put on weight, eating vegetable and water. So this was not just a natural consequence of a diet. This was the Lord affirming their decision to stand upon the ground of Scripture and not to yield. The Lord was honouring them because they were honouring him. And so that's what happened. And when you come down toward verse uh, number 17, you discover this, that these four children, not just Daniel, but the others, God gave them knowledge and God did this in skill and all learning and wisdom and he had understanding, visions and dreams. Visions is when you're awake and you see things. Dreams are when you're sleeping and you see things. And at the end of the day, the king had said he should bring them in. The prince of the universe brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and they stand there and they now are elevated ten times better than all the other people round about them. The Lord has honoured them. I've got a wee quote to give you. If God wants to lift you up in a society in which you live, then 
As a Christian, the way to be lifted up is to live an uncompromising life. Now that is counterintuitive, actually. Let God work in the hearts of people round about you, who you work for and with, and he will draw you to that place that he would have you be. Quite a challenge that actually, isn't it? The quote goes on and says this, don't strive and seek for these things without God. It's not that God won't take you there. How are you going to get there? Here's the last bit of the quote. God takes care of his faithful, uncompromising people. You might think that you cannot get on in this world as a Christian. That's not true. That's just not true. There are Christians who do go on well, even in career and business and whatever they choose to go into, and they rise to positions of prominence and success as the world sees it, and they have not compromised. It's possible. It's unusual, but it's possible. Where would the Lord have you be? And if you want to be where that is, then you cannot get there unrighteously. You can't get there unrighteously. But if you allow the Lord to work and remain faithful to him, he will take you to where he would have you. And God blesses Daniel. Now this is also, don't take this out of context and say, well, you know, if I'm really faithful to God, I'm going to be really successful. It's, that's not what the Bible teaches either. But where God would have you is where he will take you if you are faithful and uncompromising. And so Babylonish assessment was just this. I've read it in verse number 18. At the end of the day, the king said, bring them in. And he brought them in. And they saw the blessing of the Lord upon them. What's a little practical challenge for us today? I think there's two or three things here. Just as I finish. Number one, what is our value system as Christians? You know, I think when, when lockdown was going on, not so much recently, it was easy because we weren't in physical proximity with each other um, or with groups of Christians, and you're online with folk all the time. Um, especially for those a bit younger, it was very easy to lose perspective. Very easy. And, you know, all the stuff that you see online, the lifestyles that are displayed, and all the success, whether it be sporting or whatever it is, or... You know, whatever it is in this world that comes before you, whatever it is, we're all different, different things appeal to different people. But it's very easy to lose a value system and adopt that which is put before you in this world. Let us be like Daniel and purpose in our heart that that will not be the case with us. That we will make sure our value system is from the word of God and not the world before us. It's a big thing and it's so different you know the world doesn't essentially value morality it doesn't essentially value um, righteous living just look at the people who are deemed successful in this world there's very few of them righteous living very few of them with high morals and yet lauded and worshipped and all the rest of it so let's just take that on board let's also be willing to take a stand but make sure that when we do take a stand, it's upon the word of God. 
and there's a solid biblical mandate and foundation for it. Also, thirdly, wherever you expect to go in life, and who knows, but wherever you expect to go in terms of your life path, make sure you commit to go where God would have you be and allow him to take you there. Allow him to take you there. Instead of kicking down doors that are clearly shut and refusing to walk through ones that are clearly open, let him take you there. Trust the Lord will just bless that little practical word um, this evening. Now, what we're going to do...